All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. We're in a section in the book of Genesis where a shift is occurring from Abraham to Isaac. And of course, the promises of God have been stated to Abraham in places like Genesis chapter 12 and following. And we've been journeying with Abraham through the course of his life to watch how God reconfirmed his promise to Abraham over and over again, that he would become a blessing to all nations, that one of his descendants specifically would be a blessing to all nations, uh, that his descendants would become as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, so of incredible number, and also that he would be given the land of Canaan and given military victory over the Canaanite people, or at least his descendants would at some point. Now, at this point, Sarah has died. Uh, Abraham is still alive. And as we saw in chapter 24, he's arranged for the marriage of his only son, uh, Isaac, the child of promise. And of course, we've seen the miraculous hand of God in providing Isaac to Abraham and Sarah. But at this point, Abraham is still alive, but the story is shifting. And we're watching the promise of God now move to Isaac, as it will then flow through him to Jacob, to the tribes of Israel, and ultimately on down the line into Jesus himself, who would die for the sin of the world. But let's start out in chapter 25 by reading the first handful of verses. It says, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asarim, Letashim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Eldaah. All these were the children of Keturah. Now, this is an interesting development for the reader of the book of Genesis because, of course, the relationship between Abraham and Sarah was a prized relationship. And God confirmed over and over again that the promised child would flow not just from Abraham, but from Abraham and Sarah to the next generation. And the last time we saw another woman come into Abraham's life, it was Hagar. And Hagar, of course, with her son Ishmael, threatened the whole promised plan of God. So the reader might naturally be a little concerned uh, at this moment. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second. But here, there are some uh, ambiguities concerning the timeline of this event. It appears that Moses isn't all that concerned about a harsh or sharp chronology. And part of the reason I'm saying that is because in the next episodes, we're going to see Isaac uh, and Rebekah struggle to have children. And at 60 years of age, Isaac will have his sons, Jacob and Esau. It will almost appear to the reader, because we're about to read of Abraham's death, that Abraham is not on the scene uh, when those births occur. But he actually is. It's just that 
Moses is including some of these details before that moment. Abraham was 100 years older than Isaac. He died at 175 years of age. So when Isaac was 60, Abraham was 160. So he was alive when Jacob and Esau were born. But Moses seems concerned about tying up the narrative about Abraham so that he can move on to uh, Isaac. So like I said, it's a little bit of an unclear timeline uh, at this point, why it's being mentioned uh, right here. But part of the point of including this other relationship with this woman Keturah, and there is a passage in 1 Chronicles that calls Keturah one of Abraham's concubines, and that causes some people to think that that's all that Keturah was. Although later it shows that there were other concubines. So it does seem that she was brought in after Sarah's death as a full-fledged wife and that Abraham is now uh, enlivened again and they end up having six sons uh, together. And these six sons, uh, Moses is careful to include their names and then some of their children because these individuals would go on and populate the regions around Israel. In other words, the Israelites would know these names, they would know these people groups. Uh, and this was actually part of God's fulfillment of his promise on Abraham's life. You might remember back in chapter 17 in verse four, God had made a promise to Abraham that he would make him a multitude of nations. It was another wrinkle to the plan that God had for him. Not just that the nation of Israel or that God's people would grow numerous and unable to be counted, but also that from Abraham would come various nations. And apparently his relationship with Keturah after Sarah's death was what enabled that to occur. So this is partly the promise of God being fulfilled as unhappy as it might make us with our, our modern romantic ideas and all of that, it kind of saddens us to see after the Sarah and Abraham narrative, uh, this new relationship with Keturah. Uh, but let's go on and, and read what happens next. In verse five, it says, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. Now here, what Abraham is doing is Abraham is safeguarding the promise of God. You know, as we've been seeing, of course, the promise of God has been declared to Abraham. And then secondarily, over the years, it's been confirmed that it will flow through Isaac, as I've already said today. And Abraham now is working hard to make sure that that promise of God is focused in the right direction. He's thinking about the next generation. Now, Abraham loves these other sons that he's had, just as he loved Ishmael previously. Uh, this is not his way of treating them poorly. This is not his way of treating them prejudicially. This is his way of saying, in faith, God, I believe that through Isaac, you are going to bless even my other sons and their offspring, if Isaac becomes the recipient of the promise. And so he's safeguarding the covenant. To me, this is an expression of Abraham's faith. He's saying, God, 
I trust you and I trust this thing that you said would occur through me and through Isaac. I trust in it. I believe in it so much that even though I can't see it, and even though it might seem wise to just sort of diversify my assets, so to speak, and invest equally in all of my sons as I send them away, I'm going to send these sons to a distant land so that Isaac alone can be the recipient of your promise and dwell here in the land of Canaan. And in a sense, what Abraham is doing is something really beautiful. He's saying, I am going to do things that lead to the betterment of the next generation. And I think I've already mentioned that in our study through the book of Genesis, that constant focus of God's people in thinking about the next generation. Abraham was not willing to be the kind of man who just thought about himself, his own experience, his own blessings, his own issues. That is the mark of a carnal person. But a spiritual person says, no, I'm concerned about those who will come after me. There was a king in the Old Testament era who was told of great evil that would come upon the kingdom after his death. And he said, well, at least there will be peace in my days. But someone who cares about the next generation, someone who cares about the people coming along after them would not say words like that. They would instead say, no, I want to fight hard today so that the future generation can be blessed. And I think this goes for families, this goes for churches, this goes for disciple makers, that we would be people who say, it's not about just how I'm doing, but about the generations, the people that are following after me. I wanna pour into them. And Abraham was that kind of man. All right, so he set things up, even though he had these additional sons, he set things up so that Isaac could thrive. Verse seven, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. Now there's a little phrase I want to draw your attention to first from that paragraph we read. It's just the simple phrase, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. The man lived a very long time, as we've talked about in our study of Genesis. It seems that the life spans of the patriarchs, this side of the flood, was often double our modern idea of what a healthy lifespan would be. At 175 years, Abraham died. But Moses is careful to talk about the days of the years of Abraham's life. You see, though he lived nearly two centuries his life was comprised of days, days of walking with God, days of sometimes monotony, days of silence. We have various episodes that are detailed to us in Abraham's life. The time when God spoke to him originally to depart from his home country. The time when God led him into battle against the armies that had overtaken other cities, including 
the city of Sodom where Lot had been lodged. The time that he met with Melchizedek. Uh, the time that he took matters into his own hands and uh, lied about Sarah's identity to, before Pharaoh and before Abimelech. The time that he stumbled with Hagar, the time that God fulfilled his promise with Isaac's birth, the time that God visited him at the tent and spoke with him, the time that he interceded for the people of Sodom. There are many episodes that we are uh, able to learn from the life of Abraham, but when you think about it in the grand span of a 175-year life, we just have a small little snapshot of this man's long journey of faith. There were exciting moments. There were powerful moments, times that God spoke to him, but there were many days of just walking and slugging it out here on earth before his Lord. So the man lived 175 years. Genesis is clear that it was a good life. It was, he, he died in good old age, it says there, an old man and full of years. This is Genesis speak for he lived a full life. Keep this in mind because later in the book of Genesis, when Jacob, whose name had been turned into Israel, meets Pharaoh in the land of Egypt because he's reconnected with Joseph, his son, he'll tell Pharaoh, my days have been few and evil. Uh, here, Abraham's uh, life is said to have been long and good. And he was gathered, it says there in verse 8, to his people. He was gathered there to his people. Now, this is an important phrase because some people will say that in the Old Testament, the people of Israel or the people of faith did not have a concept about life after death, that it was only in the New Testament era and only in the early years of the church that the idea of heaven or the idea of life after death began to occur. And some of these ideas are based on some of the Psalms, which do have lines that indicate the idea of hope in this life and in this life alone. But phrases like this actually combat that kind of concept. He was gathered to his people, it says. Now, this is an idea or a phrase that's repeated throughout the Pentateuch. And when it's spoken, it's not always meant to say uh, that he was brought home to his physical place of origin, but that they were brought home to where their ancestors were, that they went into eternity itself. Job, who many regard, or, or the, the book of Job, which many regard as the first book in the Bible actually written, written even before Genesis, even though the contents of it occurred after the events in the early chapters of Genesis. Job himself said of his own life that one day his skin would be destroyed and then he would see God. So it appears that from the very early days, there was a concept of going home to be with God after death. And here we see that described of Abraham, uh, that he was gathered to his people. Now, when they buried Abraham, Ishmael and Isaac, they got together. There was a truce together, so to speak. And these two sons of Abraham, they bury their father in the cave of Machpelah. We visited this cave for the first time in chapter 23. Abraham purchased it inside the land of Canaan. It was sort of a message that Abraham 
was speaking to say, I'm not going to go back to my country of origin. God has promised us the land of Canaan. I'm going to buy a cave, be buried here, bury my wife here, because this is the land that God has promised to give us. He had to buy the cave. God didn't give him the cave. He had to buy the cave. But in faith, he's trusting that God is going to give this land to his descendants. At this point, he still doesn't have any other land. But Ishmael and Isaac are faithful to bury their father in this cave. Can you imagine the great father of faith, 175 years old, all these incredible promises from God, and he dies only owning a cave in this land of Canaan. You know, it just speaks to us of the long, drawn-out process that God will take us through to fulfill his purposes and his promises in our lives. I wonder if part of the reason for this, part of the reason of God developing our faith in this way, his slowness, so to speak, though it really isn't slow because his timing is perfect. But I wonder if our perception of God is working slowly at times is actually something that God is doing so that we would have a healthy relationship with him rather than a genie in the bottle kind of relationship with him. One where we think that if I walk with God, then today, then tomorrow, literally tomorrow, his blessing is going to come. No, instead we should say, I know that it pays to walk with God. He will unfold his promises in my life, sometimes even over decades, but I will cling to and trust in him. Now in verse 11, it says, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. Now, this is an important little line. I, I wanted to look at it all by itself because what it's telling us is that we've already seen Abraham work really hard to make sure that Isaac is the son who is blessed. You know, he sent away all his other sons. He gave Isaac everything that he had. He's trying to say with his actions, Isaac is the son of promise. But now Abraham's dead. Abraham can't make any more decisions regarding Isaac's life. But with Abraham off of the scene, God steps in. And God begins to bless Isaac, Abraham's son. This is so important for us to recognize. So important for us to see. You see, so often... We think that we need to be the ones to prop up the people around us. Uh, you know, someone you're discipling or someone you're ministering to, you've got to be there for them so they can experience the blessing of God. But so often when you're not around, it is God who has direct access into their lives to minister to them and build them up himself. And here God confirms, yeah, it's Isaac whom I'm going to bless. Now, Isaac goes back to a place called Bir Lahai Roy, it says there in verse 11. Uh, this was a place that Isaac had been to previously. Uh, we actually saw it in the previous chapter, chapter 24, when the servant of Abraham brought Rebekah back from Abraham's home country. Isaac was out here in Bir Lahai Roy meditating when Rebecca showed up. So it's kind of a place of 
seeking the Lord or prayer for Isaac. It was also a place of prayer for Hagar in a previous episode in chapter 16, when she was in a place of desperation as a younger woman uh, and Ishmael seemed that he was going to perish. They'd been driven from Abraham's home. Hagar had been filled with a bit of pride. She's humbled out there in the wilderness and she cries out to the Lord and God hears her voice. That's the meaning of Beer Lahai Roy. God sees, God hears. And so Isaac, he goes to the place where he knows God will hear him. He's seeking the Lord, in other words, by going to this geographical place. I've heard the voice of God here. Hagar heard the voice of God here. I can go here to seek the Lord. Now in verse 12, we have the generations of Ishmael. Now in a sense, the whole book of Genesis, as I've mentioned to you at various points, is a collection of these books of generations. They're called toldots in the Hebrew, but these books of generations. And this one that we're going to look at right now, though not exciting, is one of the briefest books of generations in the book of Genesis. And, and we actually only have a few more to go after uh, the book of Ishmael's generations. We have the book of Isaac. We have the book of Jacob. We'll then actually have a brief little book that declares Esau's uh, family tree. And then we'll see uh, the end of the book of Jacob, which is really going to be a long story of one of Jacob's sons, Joseph. So we're in a sense kind of getting, even though we're only halfway through the book of Genesis, we're coming to the end of the book of Genesis when you look at it from the vantage point of how many books of generations uh, it records. Now, why are these in there? Well, imagine it like a tree that is growing. As that tree grows up, there are different branches from the family of faith uh, that God needs to deal with. And some branches branch off. It's not really the main story. So God will detail them for a little bit, end their story, and get back to the main a trunk of the tree, so to speak. And way back in Genesis chapter 3, God told Adam and Eve that one day a serpent crusher would come who would crush Satan under his feet. And we're following the line, you know, from Adam and Eve, through Seth, through Noah, through Abraham, through Isaac, Jacob. We're following this line to get to the serpent crusher that is Jesus Christ. Uh, but there are little offshoots that need to be dealt with. And so here, the author Moses is going to deal with the book of Ishmael. So let's read it together. It says in verse 12, these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdiel, or, or Adbiel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jatur, Naphish, and Kedema. Uh, so these are 12 sons that Ishmael had. These are the sons of Ishmael, verse 16, and these are their names. By their villages and by their encampments, 12 princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last 
and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. So here we have just the genealogy or the family tree of Ishmael uh, himself. Now, like I said, this is partly so that Moses can wrap up Ishmael's story and get back to the story of Abraham, Isaac, and just keep it moving forward. But there is another secondary purpose in mentioning Ishmael's story. Remember back in Genesis chapter 21, uh, a second time when Hagar and Ishmael had to flee into the wilderness, they cried out to the Lord. God told Hagar, I heard the voice of the Lord. And then she told, or God told Hagar that he would make Ishmael into a great nation. Genesis 21 verse 18. This little episode or this little family tree shows us that God fulfilled his promise. He made Ishmael into a great nation. All these different uh, sons that he had became tribal leaders who lived in various villages uh, and they had princes and uh, many people. So God has fulfilled his promise, in other words, uh, to Ishmael. You probably also notice there at the end of verse 17 that Ishmael was gathered to his people. It's a similar line to what happened to Abraham. Abraham, when he died, was also gathered to his people. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, well, there you have, there you have it. You have Ishmael, a non-believing man, uh, brought to his ancestors. It's just superstition that is being spoken of. But I'd say not so fast. I'm not entirely convinced that Ishmael did not become a believer at some point in his life. That same episode where Ishmael and Hagar were in the wilderness, God said to Hagar, I've heard the voice of the boy. He was a late teen at that point in his life. It sounds like prayer to me that, that Ishmael had been humbled by God and was crying out to the Lord. And of course, as the son of Abraham, you would have to suspect that Abraham taught him about the ways and the things of God. Uh, so in, it's possible that Ishmael himself died as a believing man and was gathered to his people, which would be God's people. Also in verse 18, the end of Ishmael's generation, it ends by saying that he settled over and against all his kinsmen. It's kind of a hostile phrase. Like there's just this animosity between Ishmael and those around him over and against all his kinsmen. Uh, but this is actually also a fulfillment of God's promise uh, for and about Ishmael's life. He had said in chapter 16, verse 12, that he would be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So this was fulfilled. God knew what would happen in Ishmael's life, but that's it. That's the end of the Ishmael story. And God is now moving on. We've wrapped up Abraham. We've wrapped up Ishmael. And now we're moving on into the story of Isaac. These, verse 19, 
are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Like I said, we're now moving into another book of generations. This one, verse 19, the generations of Isaac. It actually won't last that long. Uh, the book of Isaac really doesn't even have a lot of details about Isaac. The whole point of Isaac's life is to kind of drive towards the life of Jacob, Isaac's son. And a lot of the life of uh, Isaac is actually talking about the life of Jacob and his older brother, Esau. Uh, but that's where we're at. We're looking at the generations of Isaac. Uh, there's a, co a conflict, though, right away. We learn in verse 21 that his wife, Rebekah, his beloved wife, that he uh, met and married in the previous chapter, chapter 24, we discover that she's barren. Uh, she can have no child. Uh, because they have children, in verse 26, at the age, at Isaac's age being 60, uh, we know then that for 20 years, Rebecca was barren. For 20 years, she had no children. Even though we don't know her exact age, we know that it was 20 years of barrenness. Now, this is a theme throughout Scripture and especially throughout the Old Testament. The idea of God having to work with the barren womb. Sarah, of course, had already been barren. Now we have Rebecca, who is unable to have a child. Jacob's wives, Rachel and Leah, will go through the same difficulty. Uh, and the idea here is really simple and, in a sense, beautiful. It's like this. Isaac, he's clearly the guy. He's clearly the child of promise. He's a miracle baby. God keeps confirming over and over again. He is the one. And Rebecca, for her part, she's got all the right credentials. She did not come from the land of Canaan. She came from Abraham's hometown, from Abraham's own family. His brother Nahor uh, had, you know, a son named Bethuel, and Bethuel had Rebecca. So she's got all the right credentials. These two have everything going for them. You would think that they are able to produce the necessary offspring and heir for God's promise to keep going. But this barrenness gets in the way. It's like a way for God to communicate. Look, it's not about human effort. It's not about what you bring to the table. It's not about your qualifications. This brings us back to the gospel, of course. It's not about that. It's about the effort of God himself. What will he do to fulfill his promises and create a people for himself? It draws us to the cross. Now, the beautiful thing here is that Isaac, what does he do? Well, he prays. It doesn't tell us whether there were 20 years of barrenness and then he prayed or whether he prayed right at the beginning. But Isaac, he prayed. He cried out to uh, the Lord. He did not do what his father Abraham had done and connect himself to someone like Hagar to have a child. 
No, instead, he cried out to the Lord. He prayed. He interceded for his wife. And God moved. The Lord answered his prayer. Again, God would be the one to fulfill uh, the promise. God would be the one to do the work. You know, the reality, I think, in our modern era and world is that so often in the body of Christ, we're able to identify hurdles, problems, obstacles, things that need uh, solving, dilemmas that must be dealt with. But so often we will not pray. We will not cry out to the Lord to help us in our time of need, but will instead try to solve the problem with our own ingenuity. Maybe it's the curse of our modern scientific era where the brilliance of mankind has produced great innovation. Uh, maybe we trusted a little too much to get the job done. But here, Isaac cried out to God. He said, God, I don't know what to do with this. This is beyond me, and I need your help. And God moved for this man who humbled himself in that way. Now, verse 22 goes on to say that the children struggled together within her. Now, when it says that as readers, if this was your first time reading the book of Genesis, you might be shocked. The children, there's been no mention of her having twins at this point. But remember, the original readers were Israelites. They knew that Jacob and Esau were born as a result of Rebekah's pregnancy. So, the author, Moses, he just throws it in there. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So Rebecca, she goes and prays to the Lord herself. She's got this struggle in the womb. She, she wonders what's happening here inside me. If I'm so blessed, why is this occurring within? The children struggling, by the way, is a theme that will follow out the rest of uh, Israel's history with the descendants of Esau. Jacob and Esau are wrestling as uh, little babies in the womb. Uh, they are going to wrestle in life itself as brothers. Uh, but then their descendants are also going to be perpetually against one another. When the people of Israel try to go into the promised land, they'll ask Esau's descendants, the Edomites, for safe passage through their land, and the Edomites will refuse them. And eventually, later on in Israel's history, the Edomites will join the Babylonians in attacking the people of Israel. And when Jesus is born in Bethlehem and the wise men come from the east to inquire in Jerusalem about the birth of the Messiah, King Herod, who is an Edomite through his jealousy, orders the slaughter of all the baby boys in Bethlehem, two years old and under. So all throughout scripture, there is this struggle between Jacob and Esau, the people of Israel and the Edomite people. But this struggle 
uh, situation is also very common in scripture all throughout the book of Genesis, the struggle of brothers. In other words, you've got Cain versus Abel. You have Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the brothers that came from Noah, Noah's sons. You've got Abram versus uh, his herdsmen versus Lot's herdsmen. You have Ishmael versus Isaac. And then the whole back half of the book of Genesis, the back third of the book of Genesis is about a conflict between the 11 brothers with the one brother, Joseph. This is just a constant theme throughout the book of Genesis, the struggle of brothers. And so Rebecca prays, she cries out to God and God gives her this powerful prophecy, this powerful oracle. Now it doesn't say how she received this oracle. And I don't know how she received this oracle, but some have speculated that since Abraham was still alive at this point, even though Moses has chosen to deal with Abraham's death before this event, uh, he's still got 15 years to go when these two children are born. So he's still alive. Some have wondered if Abraham is the one that Rebecca inquired of when she inquired of the Lord and that Abraham spoke this prophecy to Rebecca. Someday we'll know, but right now we uh, don't. But the oracle is fascinating because God said there's two nations in your womb and the older will serve the younger. Uh, this is another one of those ongoing themes throughout the book of Genesis, the older serving the younger. Now you have Abel and Cain, and then who ended up being the promised line? Well, their younger brother, Seth. Uh, you have Isaac and Ishmael, the younger brother, Isaac, being the child of promise. Joseph, who I spoke about, will end up being the chosen one who blesses his entire family. And Joseph's own sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, when they were brought to Jacob for a blessing, the older was refused and the younger, Ephraim, was blessed by God. David, who became the greatest king in Israel's history, he was the youngest of the eight sons of Jesse. And of course, this all speaks of Jesus himself, who Isaiah 53.3 says was despised and rejected. When Jesus came along, he was overlooked. He was dismissed. Uh, and so often in this culture, the younger was dismissed. But God would reverse that plan. And the older, he said, would serve the younger. This highlights God's sovereign choice. He can do what he wants to do. Now, verse 24, when her days to give birth were completed, Behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she, Rebecca, bore them. All right, so these two baby boys, the twins, are born and they couldn't be more different in their birth. Esau comes out like a little manimal. He's red, he's hairy, he just looks like a little furball as he comes out. And then Jacob comes out and he's holding on to Esau's heel. And so they named these two boys accordingly. 
the name Esau meaning red or hairy, and the name Jacob meaning heel grabber or reaching out. Uh, likely they didn't have an evil kind of connotation in their minds when they named him such, but as time goes on, we'll discover that uh, both of these names are appropriate, especially Jacob's name. He really ends up being a man who, through deceit, is tripping up other people. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So again, not much is shown of the boy's childhood, uh, but still the contrast between Esau and Jacob that you saw at their birth, it follows them into adulthood. When they grew up, Esau became this skillful hunter. He liked being outside. He was a man of the field. You just can imagine him always dirty, always hunting, always on the go, always full of energy. Uh, brimming over with testosterone. Uh, Jacob, though, was a quiet man. He just wasn't loud, boisterous, aggressive like Esau likely was. Uh, and he dwelled in tents. Uh, this does not mean that Esau lived outside. Everybody dwelt in tents. But the idea is that Jacob just spent a lot of time indoors. And Isaac... The father ended up loving Esau, it says, because Esau made good food. He loved his game. He loved to eat the meat that Esau had hunted. Uh, but Rebekah, she loved Jacob. She gravitated towards Jacob, partly because he was around more, I'm sure. And perhaps even partly because she knew that the older would serve the younger, that Jacob was the child of promise. Now, again, the Bible describes things that it does not prescribe for God's people. This is not a parental prescription. This is not saying that parents should choose their favorites. The dad should pick one child, the mother should pick another child, or anything like that. This is actually a harmful thing that they're doing, and we'll see that in a future episode. Uh, but this is just what happened there in that family. Now, all that said... There is an episode that needs to be focused on that is very important for the development of the story. Look at verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Uh, which sounds like the Hebrew word for red. So this man, he wanted this red stew. Jacob said, verse 31, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised the birthright. Now, I think Esau was being overly dramatic in this whole thing. He comes in, he says kind of to, to this effect, I'm starving to death. I need to have some of that red stew. And Jacob, well, he proves to be not all that bad of a hunter himself. And he 
looks at Esau and says, well, give me your birthright. Now in that culture, the birthright could be bartered for. Esau thinks about his birthright, his position as the firstborn by seconds, but he's still the firstborn. And he says, what is this birthright to me? I'm about to die. Like I say, I think he's being overly dramatic. I doubt that he's actually about to die. But that's the way the logic works in his mind. And so he quickly trades his birthright by swearing to give it to Jacob for a bowl of red stew. Now, I don't know if Rebecca and Isaac had told Jacob about the oracle from God, uh, that Jacob would be the one who received the blessing. I don't know if this was Jacob's way to try to make the plans of God unfold in his life and manipulate things for himself. But this would not be the way that God needed to give Jacob the blessing. It really isn't so much about Jacob though, as it's trying to show us the unsuitability of Esau as the one who would be the promised line. He's portrayed here as a carnal man who falls prey to his affections, his impulses, his hunger, his appetite, his whims. He comes onto the scene, he smells the food, and he is drawn to it to the point that he throws away the best thing he has going for him. Now, even if he didn't know that the birthright that he'd get from Isaac was the one that God had given to Abraham, one of the most incredible blessings and promises in all of human history, even if all Isaac, or excuse me, Esau thought of it was simply that this promise or this blessing is the natural blessing that fathers in that culture would bestow on their firstborn son and the wealth that they would give to them, the land that they would give to them, all of those blessings, even if it was only that, not the promise of Abraham, even if it was only that, it still is a terrible trade. But nonetheless, Esau made that trade. Hebrews chapter 12 warns us to not be like Esau, who give, gave in to the fleshly bodily impulses. Actually in Hebrews 12, the author uses Esau as an example to say that we should not give in to sexual immorality, the impulses of the body. That's what Esau was giving into, a hunger pain that he felt he had to have satisfied. You know what the problem is with Esau, of course? He self-diagnosed. He said, this is what I need rather than looking to God and saying, God, what do you say I need? He had no control of his impulses, but instead gave in to these impulses and it led to his demise. Now let's look at chapter 26 together as we move on in Genesis. It says, now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Now, in the passage here that we're going to look at, and we'll be able to move through it fairly quickly, uh, there are a lot of repeated themes. Abimelech is mentioned, a famine is mentioned, Gerar is mentioned. This all sounds kind of familiar. And the reason it sounds familiar is because in a previous episode, of course, Abraham 75 or so years before this, had gone down to Gerar, had gone to Abimelech, 
lied about his wife. A lot of these same themes are going to be repeated right here in this story. Now, through this story in chapter 26, we're going to see this figure named Abimelech. Later in the chapter, we'll see a man named Phicol. These are man, men who were uh, uh, around, it appears, many years earlier in the interaction with Abraham. But more than likely, Abimelech is not the name of an individual, but a title of kings in that area. And Phicol is likely not a man, but a title or a designation of a kind of man that was a military uh, force for Abimelech. So these are not the same guys that we saw before, but they are uh, the descendants at the very least of those previous figures that we saw. Uh, so there's a famine in the land. It's not bad enough for Abraham to have to flee to where everyone in that era or area would go to during a famine. Everyone in that area would go down to Egypt during a time of great famine because Egypt was fairly famine proof because of the blessings of the Nile River. So it hadn't gotten bad enough for Isaac to have to go down to Egypt yet, uh, but he's, it seems, struggling uh, or will be tempted uh, to go there. Now here what we're going to see is that the problems that Abraham had, they follow Isaac. You know, Abraham had to deal with famine. Isaac has to deal with famine as well. Let's go on and read verse 2. And the Lord appeared to him, appeared to Isaac, and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So there he is, Isaac, in the Philistine territory with Abimelech. But God appears to him and says, hey, don't go down to, don't, don't go down to Egypt. That's a temptation for you. The famine might grow more severe, but don't go down to Egypt. This would have spoken, of course, to the people of Israel as they thought about their life in the wilderness or as they thought about their life in the land of promise. And when they had difficulty, so often what they wanted to do was run down to Egypt. Egypt was often thought of as like the escape valve, the place that you could go to find respite and rest, uh, the place where the pressure could be taken off, the financial difficulties or the war. You could escape all that by running to Egypt. That was so often the temptation that the people of Israel felt. And Isaac would have felt that temptation as well during this time where the famine was growing worse. And so God says, don't go to Egypt. This should also always be for us a constant encouragement in our own lives. We are so often tempted to turn to Egypt, so to speak, to turn to the easy way, to cash in the blessings that come with walking with God for the way of the world and trying to get the worldly blessings to take the heat off a little bit in the pressures of being a person of faith or a child of God. And so God urges him, don't give in to the temptation to go back down 
to Egypt. And then God says to him, if you don't, here's everything I'm going to do for you. And he just lists promises, as we saw in verse 2 through verse 5, that were connected also to Abraham. So God is again reaffirming or confirming that his promise from Abraham is for Isaac. Now look at the fifth verse with me before we move on. We already read it, but look at it with me again. It says, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. This was God's way of showing Isaac that the blessing was in one sense attached to his obedience. That this is like a covenant that he's been brought into. That there's a certain code of conduct that is fitting all these promises and blessings that he said he would pour out upon Isaac. Uh, the people of Israel needed to see that because what would they receive when Moses went up to the mountaintop? They'd receive the law of God. They'd receive the statutes, the commandments of God. It's not a way for them to earn God's blessing, but it was a way of living that a covenant person would agree to live and that God's blessing would unlock in a sense. It's, a, it's covenant or law terminology. All right, let's go on to verse six. So Isaac, he listened to God and he settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. Now, this is fascinating, of course, to us, because we saw, we've seen Abraham do this twice already. He did this in Egypt. He did this uh, in the same area to a previous Abimelech. He had given in to fear rather than faith. And Isaac does the same thing. Rebecca is a knockout. She's beautiful and he's fearful for his own life. So he tells the king there that Rebecca is his sister. He says that he feared. He thought the men of this place might kill me because of Rebecca, because he knew how beautiful she was. Uh, now this is fascinating because Isaac needs to be a man of faith. But it's also fascinating because what you're seeing here are the sins of the father being passed down to the son. Uh, this is often how it works. This is often how it takes place. Things that we don't even really know that we're guilty of, but by habit almost, because they've been ingrained in us, either through the absence of a father or the inactivity of a father, the rebellion of a father, Whatever means, so often a father will pass on his tendencies to the children who come after him. It's a, it's a warning to fathers, for sure, to make sure that fathers are holy, godly, setting a good model and example for their children. But it's also a warning for children of whatever age to think about the way that they were raised and some of the tendencies that they might be giving into without even thinking about it. Isaac had entered in to the sin of Abraham. Now, verse 8, when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, 
what is this you've done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now, Abimelech looks out the window one day, it says, and he sees Isaac laughing with Rebekah. That's a very innocent word in English to us, but we've actually talked about this word laughing before when we saw Ishmael laughing at baby Isaac. And that word laughing, it's difficult to translate. It could mean just pure laughter. It could mean a little bit of uh, teasing or mockery. So maybe with Isaac and Rebecca, it was a playful, flirtatious kind of teasing that would be inappropriate for a brother and sister, but appropriate for husband and wife. But it also has within it the possibility of some kind of uh, sexual contact, which of course would be very inappropriate from Ishmael, a teenage boy, to a toddler, Isaac, uh, but would be, you know, a tender, appropriate thing from Isaac to his wife, Rebecca. So uh, somehow though, whatever it was, when Abimelech saw it, it just computed, it translated immediately. That's not his sister, that's his wife. And he confronts Isaac about it and says, hey, why are you doing this to us? Somebody might've taken Rebecca for themselves and brought great sin upon us, wrath upon us, uh, guilt upon us. Whoever touches this man or his wife, Abimelech then warns, will be put to death. Now, this is, again, very similar to the previous episode where the previous Abimelech uh, kind of rebuked Abraham. Like, hey, how have you done this to us? And then talked to him, sort of lectured him about the sanctity of marriage. This would be shocking to the people of Israel. Reading about these Philistine kings who are so concerned about making sure that, that adultery doesn't happen on their watch. They're watching over the marital unit and wanting to defend it, uh, even with laws that are trying to protect and defend the sanctity of marriage. It's Abimelech the Philistine teaching Isaac and teaching the people of Israel about how important it would be for them to honor marriage. Now, that might not sound like a big deal to us, but when you think about it, the people of Israel, what got them into trouble over and over and over again? Well, one of the big problems in Israel over time in the Old Testament pages was unfaithfulness in their marital vows. And that just broke down their society. It broke down their godliness. It broke down their faithfulness. Confusion and paganism entered in, and pretty soon they were carried off into captivity as a result, partly of unfaithfulness in marriage. Marriage is something that's worthy of protection, worthy of fighting for. Uh, it helps create the society of God himself. And so Abimelech rebukes Isaac. And Isaac, verse 12, sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with the earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us for you are much mightier than we are. Okay, here we see 
Uh, the blessing of God on Isaac's life is reconfirmed. God blessed him a hundredfold that year. Uh, in the Old Testament pages, often the blessing of God is financial in nature. So Isaac is abundantly blessed by God. But the Philistines, they respond to this blessing with a few things. They're envious, first of all, it says. They're envious of his wealth. Secondly, they go and stop up some of the wells of Isaac, kind of as a way to drive him out of the land. And then eventually Abimelech comes and just asks Isaac to leave. You're, you're much mightier than we are, he says. Go away from us. So Isaac, verse 17, departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. So Isaac does depart from Abimelech's presence and goes back into the place that Abraham had been previously. And he starts redigging all the wells of his father, Abraham. And the idea here is that Isaac, he's just this like magical well finder. Now, of course, we know that this is God doing this in his life. And in that era and area to be able to dig a well and be successful is just a sign of God's blessing upon your life. But I think there's something beautiful and devotional about Isaac going and digging up the old wells that his father Abraham had previously dug. I don't mean to overly devotionalize scripture or spiritualize scripture, but there is something to going to your spiritual forefathers, so to speak, figuring out where were they at and redigging those wells, the, the wells of prayer, the wells of Bible study, the, the wells of devotion to God, the wells of prayer and fasting, different areas that we've blocked up over the years and, and maybe ignored. And then to go back and say, hey, we've kind of left this area of Christianity or of the faith untouched for a while. Let's redig that well. Let's get back into it. And uh, so often, uh, as we're in the word, we discover those things that stand out as different from our experience. We need to redig those wells. Verse 19, but when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen saying, the water is ours. So he called the name of the well Isaac because they contended with him. Then they dug another well and they quarreled over that also. So they, so he called its name Sitna and he moved from there, verse 22, and dug another well and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth saying, for now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. Now this whole section is a conflict section, obviously the, the Philistines have asked him to leave. He leaves, he starts redigging wells, but they claim the water for themselves. And, and, and Isaac just keeps moving further and further away. Uh, he names the well with names that indicate the conflict. Isaac means quarrel, Sitna means enmity. And then finally Rehoboth, the, the third well, the one that he's able to actually own for himself, it means spaciousness. So there's enough space for us now. Now, the interesting thing here is that Isaac, he has the blessing of God, but he refuses to fight back. 
Uh, he doesn't push back against the Philistines, but instead submits to the Philistines. And some would see this as a sign of weakness on Isaac's part, but this is more than likely biblical peacemaking and biblical meekness that is coming out of Isaac's life. This is, like Jesus said, turning the other cheek. He knows that God is going to bless him. He knows that God is going to take care of him. He knows he doesn't need to defend himself. And so he moves on and he trusts the Lord. But also beyond that, he just keeps on digging more and more wells until he finally finds one that he can dwell at peacefully. And uh, I don't know how to say this in any other way except to just say, hey, sometimes we have to keep on digging. We just have to keep moving on, keep pressing on, keep digging until that blessing of God that we can enjoy comes up in our lives. From there, verse 23, he went up to Beersheba and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Okay, so here Isaac goes to Beersheba. Uh, Abraham had lived there for a while. You might recall the episode where Abraham worshiped God by planting a tamarisk tree. That was in Beersheba. Here, Isaac worships God in a way real similar to Abraham's normal way of worshiping God. He builds an altar uh, to the Lord and uh, worships God, praises God. Now, God appears to him here and he reaffirmed the covenant again. You know, here's all these things I'm going to do for you. You have the blessing of Abraham. But he says, fear not, for I am with you. What an encouraging word to so many of us during this season. Fear not, God is with you. Fear not. If you're in Christ, you have the blessing of Christ upon your life. He is with you. And I love this because in building the altar before the Lord, like I said, he's imitating Abraham's style of worship. He's already imitated less savory things about Abraham. This is him imitating a right and good thing about Abraham. Building an altar, uh, which means worship, calling on God, which indicates prayer. And then at the end of the whole episode, it says, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. So they prayed, they worshiped, but they also got to work. They moved out in obedience to the Lord. Now, when Abimelech, verse 26, went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, why have you come out to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? You know, they said, verse 28, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the morning, they rose early and exchanged oaths and Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. So Abimelech has second thoughts 
after sending Isaac away, he realizes Isaac is infinitely blessed by God. And so he decides we need to make a peace treaty with this man. So he comes out with his generals and they broker a peace treaty between them and Isaac. And Isaac is willing to enter into this peace treaty. They make an oath early in the morning. They have a meal and Isaac sends them on their way. They departed from him in peace. The relationship is healed. The re relationship is solid. The idea for Israel in reading this would be that opposition cannot stop the blessing of God. And even though the Philistines had come against Isaac here, now the opposition is over with. Peace has come. God is clearly on his side. Verse 32, that same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. So the very same day he made the peace treaty with Abimelech, his servants dig up a well. I'm sure it served as confirmation to him. I'm sure you've had this type of thing happen in your life. You take a step of faith. Am I doing the right thing? And then some conf conf confirming word or confirming news comes into your life and it just gives you this sense. I think I made the right decision. Uh, and Isaac goes through that same kind of experience. And so he celebrates the oath by naming it Beersheba, which sounds like the place of seven or the place of the oath. Now, when, when Esau, verse 34, was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemith, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, again, Esau is not the child of promise, and Moses is trying to show us part of the reason why he isn't. Remember when Abraham wanted Isaac to get married, he's 40 years old, he sends his servant far away from the land of Canaan to go back to Abraham's home country because he did not want Isaac to marry any of the local women. Esau does the exact opposite thing. He goes out himself to the local women, finds not one wife, but two Hittite women and marries them. And uh, they were bitter. They made life bitter, it says there, for Isaac and Rebekah. These women made life hard for Isaac and Rebekah. Their family was in conflict because Esau chose a terrible marital situation, polygamy, but he also chose terrible women to be with and it led to great pain uh, in their lives. Later on in Esau's life, he'll actually add insult to injury and he'll marry a third local Canaanite woman. Uh, so he clearly should not be the child of promise. And that's what Moses is attempting to point out to us. And really, in a sense, this concludes the real story of Isaac. He will appear in chapter 27 as a significant figure, but all with the goal of pointing towards Jacob, the chosen son. But let's rejoice that God is on the throne carrying forward his plan and his kingdom, and no human being can mess up what God is doing. He will get the job done with us or without us. God bless you, church.